0: I think I was curious, I was motivated by my own PTSD, my own trauma, and years later I was still struggling with post-traumatic stress, you know, still having nightmares, still very angry, still, you know, having episodes where I felt like I was back in captivity.
1: This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me in conversation, we have award-winning journalist, Melissa Fung. Thank you for making the time.
0: Thank you so much for having me, David.
1: Uh, Melissa, your recent book, Between Good and Evil, The Stolen Girls of Boko Haram. Thank you for taking the time to write this and for uh, just just shedding light on uh, such a story that is so horrific in the world. Uh, fr- from the outset here, who is Boko Haram?
0: Ah, oh, that's a... Big question. Boko Haram basically is, let's call them a terrorist group. They modeled themselves after the Taliban and they their goal is to create an Islamic emirate, a caliphate in northeastern Nigeria and that part of um, the Chad River Basin. So their headquarters, they were founded in Maduguri, in the Borno State, northwestern, northeastern Nigeria. And that's where their base of operations is. You know, it's in a place called the Sambisa Forest, which is sort of this expanse of brushland that, you know, makes it very hard for government forces to, to go and root them out. They believe in a very fundamentalist, very strict interpretation of Islam. Boko Haram literally means... Western education is forbidden. And so not like the Taliban, you know, girls are, are, should not be in school. Um, The only education boys should have is an Islamic education. Um, And so, you know, that, you know, operating on that, they have raised villages, they have it killed a lot of people, taken a lot of hostages into the forest uh, in an attempt to sort of build that um, caliphate that they believe is the true interpretation of their religion.
1: At the beginning of the book, you spend some time talking about how this started Boko Haram and you uh, zone in on, on a, an individual that you call uh, Mama, Mama Boko Haram. Why is she significant?
0: She's really interesting to me as a character because, you know, she was Christian and and grew up in the south of Nigeria and she married a Muslim and moved to the north uh, and she became very, very devout. You know, she wears the full hijab. You, you know, you can't... The only thing you can see of her is her eyes and she really adheres to not a fundamentalist interpretation, but to sort of the, the more strict interpretation of, of Islam. And so she was able to get to know the boys who became Boko Haram when they were just young men. You know, they would come around to her house, have meals, and she really considered them her sons. She calls them her sons. And so by the time they were indoctrinated by Muhammad Yusuf, Um, she really felt like she could be a bridge between them and government. And she spent a lot of time negotiating release of hostages. She spent a lot of time convincing some of the boys to surrender and come out of the forest. And the Nigerian government didn't, I'm not sure whether they sanctioned or approved of what she was trying to do, or maybe they felt like she was overstepping. And so a few years back, they accused her foundation of fraud and they threw her in jail where she remains today. Do you talk to her personally? Yeah. I I met her many times. Yeah. She's really a very, a a strong sort of fierce woman. She speaks loudly. She has an infectious laugh and she directs her staff, mostly men, around, you know. So, you know, she's really a, a, quite a force of nature. But I think she ran afoul of what the government was trying to do in the conflict. And, you know, on some trumped-up charges of fraud, they they threw her in jail.
1: Yeah, the government's an interesting piece in, in the way that some of these boys were indoctrinated and in what they shared with her when she was trying to bridge. What would you say about what the biggest frustration of the government is and was for Boko Haram?
0: I think, that's not my opinion necessarily, um, but some people do believe that the government, was in the government's, you know, good luck Jonathan's interest to keep the conflict going with Boko Haram. Interesting. Because it gave gave his government a purpose when the almost 300 girls were kidnapped in that one incident in Chibok, you know, it kind of raised awareness of what Boko Haram was doing internationally. Suddenly you had people like Michelle Obama holding up, bring back our girls' signs. And so, you know, taking the fight to Boko Haram, I think, showed strength on the part of the government. Um, They made a commitment to, to, to bring the girls back. There was lots of international pressure. And so some critics would say that it was in the government's best interest to kind of keep the conflict alive for political reasons. I don't know how true that is, but that's thats been one, one train of thought.
1: And in the abductions of all these uh, girls, from the best of your understanding, how do they rationalize uh, dehumanizing them to this extent?
0: I don't think that they have to rationalize it. I think they really believe that this is what women are supposed to be doing to, you know, they, they're meant to serve men, be sort of, you know, trophies, wives, slaves. I don't think that they had to ration that. I don't know. It seemed to me that they, you know, from from the stories I've heard and, and you know, the one Boko Haram commander we did interview, it, it's just what is written in the Quran, that, and they're just carrying out what's written in the Quran.
1: You spent four years uh, collecting information, interviewing several people uh, in and around this conflict. And uh, it's documented what, what you endured several years before in 2008. But what, what gave you the strength to lean into something that to many would be that much harder to go back and, and face things that could be triggering?
0: I think I was curious, I was motivated by my own PTSD, my own trauma, because I had had access to, you know, the top trauma psychologists and therapists in the country when I came back from Afghanistan. And years later, I was still struggling with um, post-traumatic stress, you know, still having nightmares, still very angry, still, you know having episodes where I felt like I was back in captivity. And so I thought, you know, how can I, with all of this help, uh, still be struggling? And and what about those who don't have any help, right? I mean, Nigeria's, you know, Northeastern Nigeria is one of the poorest parts of Africa in the world, and and therapy is a luxury. It's something that they, it's not, barely even thought about. And so how were these girls coping with the aftermath of their trauma? And so uh, that's that's what I wanted to explore, how they were dealing with it, basically on their own, without any outside help.
1: And I've heard you say before that you feel these stories are are so undertold. Um, what do you think contributes to that?
0: Oh, I think you know, the media moves on very quickly. You know, Bring Back Our Girls was a huge campaign and then it faded and nobody really knew that it wasn't just, you know, 276 girls from Chibok that were taken. There were thousands of other girls who had been taken over the years and still continue to be taken. And, you know, the spotlight of the international media is impatient. It moves on very quickly to the next thing. You know, we, uh, let me go back to Afghanistan in August, 2001, 2021 uh, Taliban came back, retook the country, uh, closed schools for girls. It was a big, big story for a long time. uh, At least until the Ukraine war happened a few months later. And that became the story. And Ukraine became the story for, a long long time with you know networks having correspondence continuously since that war began and now when's the last time you saw a report from ukraine because everybody is now in israel right and so i think you know that's part of the problem is that that the media move on there's always something a new crisis a new war a new conflict So I think, you know, what I prefer to do is to go back because the people who are left behind and still struggling with, you know, still struggling with the conflict in Ukraine, uh, in Afghanistan, still struggling with, you know, just living under the Taliban, right? Those stories become forgotten stories so easily. And I think if we don't, Try to continue to tell them and, and to shine a light on them, then, you know, more and more, we just kind of, we lose track of our common humanity in a way, I think, you know, we we empathize with the Israelis who've been being held captive by Hamas, we can empathize with, you know, the families of the men who've been killed in Ukraine, men and women. Um, We empathize with Afghan women, you know, who've lost their rights to everything, but we like to move on. And I think that I would, I think it's hard for me to, to move on sometimes, right? Because when people are still struggling and still suffering, you know, you can't really turn a blind eye.
1: What did you learn in these four years of, of interviews and you had this curiosity if, if these girls uh, would be okay with uh, the traumatic stress that would be induced after their horrific experiences?
0: I think I learned that trauma is uh, a journey that you know, continues for people in different ways. Uh, These girls found comfort in community. They may not have have had therapists, but they had community. They had their faith. They, you know, I asked them if they were angry that this happened to them. and, And repeatedly they would say, no, Allah has meant this to happen. Allah will take care of it. And so, you know, they have a deep faith, a deep Muslim faith, that they uh, rely on to kind of help them through their trauma. You know, it happened for a reason because Allah willed it. And, you know, And now he willed me to survive it. And this is why I'm here telling you my story. And so that's what I learned is that, you know, maybe they don't need the same kind of therapy that we do, right? Because they rely so much more on their faith. And that was striking to me.
1: And would they have said that, you know, their their faith is a, a different stream of of Muslim than than the Boko Haram? Like they would they would separate themselves, and you know, they're in some ways praying to a different God. Uh,
0: that's a good question. I I would think the answer is yes, but they also know it's the same faith, and they know that you know, the Quran has been misinterpreted by Boko Haram. Boko Haram like to say that that the more moderate Muslims, like the girls, you know, who don't wear a full hijab, aren't really living the true sense of what it means to be a Muslim. Their sort of very fundamentalist interpretation of it. But the girls don't have that same you know, going the other way, you know, they feel like Boko Haram has misinterpreted completely what it means to be a Muslim. And in no Quran, one of the girls told me, nowhere in the Quran, is it okay for a man to kidnap me and take me hostage and forcibly marry me off. So, you know, I I think they see what Boko Haram has done to their religion and, and, but it hasn't made them turn away from it. In fact, it's made them even more sort of, what's the word? Fervent is not the word, but even more religious in a way, you know, it has, like, they will say it's kind of deepened their relationship with their God.
1: You mentioned the forced marriages. Could you help Western people understand that and and even the enslavement that in this circumstance happened. Sometimes forced marriage is a very good thing, but in this circumstance, not very good at all.
0: I mean, it was just what Boko Haram does, right? They, you know, kidnap women, take them into the forest, and then they, you know, each fighter gets a woman as a wife, right? So basically as a slave. And so, you know, it's it's just basically what they what they do. They believe it's their right to... Marry underage girls to have more than one wife. They they do. They just believe that you know this is what they're supposed to do. And it's not, you know, forced marriage is is. I mean, the statistics don't lie, right? Forced marriage usually happens not just in Nigeria, but everywhere else in the world. Happens to very young girls. And that keeps them out of school. And they have, that starts a cycle. They have children very early on. Those children get, like, it just feeds a cycle of poverty. So the later, a girl decides, for every year, I think it is, and I'll, you know, Anybody can correct me because I don't remember the actual number. But for every year that a girl puts off marriage, right, she extends her life expectancy by, you know, a commensurate number of years. And so, wow. I it, yeah, the uh, the UN has really good numbers on, on this. We've done lots of studies. And so, you know, forced marriage usually affects children, young girls, Um pre-pubescent girls. And, you know, there are very, very few circumstances where it, I think it can be seen to be a positive. Probably none, according to everything that I've, I've you know, read and, and studied.
1: Melissa, is there much data on some of the children that would have uh, come out of, out of the things that happened with Boko Haram and these women?
0: One of the girls, Zara, um, who I profile had a child with her Boko Haram, um, quote, unquote, husband, the man she was married off to. And she brought the little girl back when she escaped the forest. And she loves that little girl, Aisha, so much. And I asked her, you know, doesn't she remind you of, uh, you know, that terrible Boko Haram fighter you were married to? And she said, no i really um I really just love her so much I don't know what I would do without her, and so you know that she sees that as something positive that came out of that experience, having this daughter who she can now you know she she couldn't go back to school I mean we tried to you know help her go to school, and she just fell too far behind, but now all the hopes and dreams she had as a young girl she's put into aisha. And so she sees Aisha as a blessing that came out of this horrible experience. But not every girl, I think, you know, feels the same way. Um, We talked to um, a a psychologist, um, Dr. Fatima, who told me a story about a girl she was trying to treat who also had brought out a Boko Haram. You know, baby that she had had with her Boko Haram husband, and she was stomping on the baby, wanting to kill it because it was, you know, had it was a reminder, right? It was a devil baby, and so you know, I think that experiences sort of differ um, depending on 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 who the girl is and what her circumstances were
1: and Melissa you bring up in the book how all these people you interview and and you've shared in other interviews uh just the way that they can uh appreciate you empathizing with them uh what, what was that like uh to be able to to share with some of these girls your own experience
0: i think for me that was a gift because it's it's hard to talk about trauma right uh, your own trauma but when you're talking about it with somebody who maybe has been through a similar experience, you know, there is an understanding that there normally isn't. And so, you know, the girls, I let them ask me anything and they wanted to know so much. They wanted to know about Afghanistan, about the Taliban, about where I was being held hostage, what my captors fed me, um, you know, they and they they would just ask me questions that nobody else really would ask me not that i invited these questions because it is a reliving of trauma but but it was just it became an open conversation between former captives and you know that we would compare scars right i was stabbed here i was stabbed there and i think for them it was a real is real revelation that somebody like me who's so different from them in so many other ways could have shared this sort of similar experience. And so I feel like they really opened up to me in a way they wouldn't have if I wasn't so open about sharing my own experience.
1: Did this in some ways uh, show the universality of, of life that that transcends cultures and transcends barriers and walking through that?
0: I think it does. I think, you know, um, you know, in war and in conflict, in disaster, you know, women and children usually suffer the most, right? And they suffer uh, very similar traumas. And I think it cuts across you know, conflicts and countries, that cuts across, you know, you see what happens in refugee camps when there's a natural disaster, right? They are not safe places for women and girls. And so I think there is, I think you're, you're right, there is sort of a commonality in this experience. And that's why it's so important to raise awareness about it. So that going forward, you know, if we have their best interests at heart when it comes to interfering with a conflict or trying to help in a disaster, right if we if we and you know in Canada we have a feminist foreign policy, our government says we do anyway. so let's put that at the forefront right? The people who suffer the most are going to be women and girls. So how do we best help them and prevent them from becoming victims of violence? And I think that's why it's so important um, to to continue to share these stories.
1: Melissa, I just want to end by by broadening this out uh, further to your own story. Uh, When you were captive for 28 days, what gave you the most hope in that time that you would one day be free?
0: I don't think that I had hoped that I would be free. I think I made peace with God. Mm. That if I wasn't, this was the end for me, then I had made a certain peace with my God. Um, you know, I prayed a lot. I'm, I am call myself a lapsed Catholic, but, you know, in times of crisis, you become unlapsed very quickly. <laughs> um, but... I, you know, I had a lot of time to think about it and and sort of just make peace with, you know, what I, what my life had amounted to and the fact that I, you know, had lots of conversations with God about what if this is it, right? And, and I was okay with that. So it wasn't that I had hoped that I would be free. Of course, I hoped I would be, but I was also okay with the alternative. And I think that, kind of put me in a place where I wasn't you know spiraling into despair
1: did you feel his presence inwardly while on outside it there was
0: chaos well I was in a hole and I usually had a captor with me so you know and the captor was Muslim he'd be five day, five times a day be praying right and you know here I am praying the rosary and he's you know uh, and I just think, okay, who's God? Whose God is going to answer first, you know, his God or my God? And I think, well, the same God, you know, what's, and that was confusing to me, you know, that was confusing to me. How can we both be praying to the same God and, you know, he can just take that gun and, and kill me, you know, or I could take the gun when he was sleeping and kill him, right? Which thought had occurred to me a couple of times. Um, but you know, it, it was, yeah, there's some dissonance there, you know, we're both praying, you know, who's listening.
1: Wow. Thank you for sharing so cathartically and taking the time to inform us a little bit more of this tragedy that's happened in Nigeria and, and through the lens of, of your own story. Appreciate what you do. We've been in conversation with Melissa Fung. You can pick up her book Between Good and Evil, The Stolen Girls of Boko Haram. Thanks, Melissa.
0: Thank you for having me, David.
1: Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.